listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Here, I'm reminded once again of my own limits as a husband um, and as a pastor, and yet it is a glorious mess too. So, Well, we've been going through the story here at Elam, and we've been learning that Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is one single continuous narrative, and it tells one single plot line. And one of the goals that we've had so far is we want you to be able to give a clear, concise answer when someone asks you, what is the Bible all about anyway? What is Scripture about? And we've got three key points here. So I invite you to to say these with me now. The Bible is the story of God's great love for us, how far we have gone from that love, And how far God was willing to go to get us back. Today we're in chapter 6 of 31. There's 31 chapters in the story. And chapter 6 covers the Israelites as they're wandering through the wilderness. And they've left Sinai at this point. You remember last week we talked about God's giving of the Ten Commandments, right? God's law. It was good. He's laying out these requirements saying, Israel, this is how you are to live as my chosen people. God's ten words, right? Well, this week they're between Sinai and the promised land, and and they're wandering. And the trip is taking longer than expected. Has anyone here ever been on a a family road trip with young kids? Yeah. And, And in your brain, as you're planning this thing out, and you've got the atlas open in front of you, there's all these glorious thoughts bubbling to the surface. Oh, this is going to be the best trip ever, my family. Like, we're going to get these views of the Grand Canyon. We're just, we're just going to go for it, and everybody's going to, we're going to have a wonderful time. And then you get in the car, and 10 minutes down the road, you're scratching your head, and you're wondering, what were we thinking? <laughs> what was I thinking? Because what happens? The complaints start. I'm hungry. And this isn't always from the back seat. Sometimes this is mom and dad in the front seat, right? I have to go to the bathroom. My sister is kicking me. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And that's when your proudest moments as a parent always happen, right? So help me. I will turn this car around. The Israelites are on a road trip through the wilderness, and it's not going well, at least from their perspective. There's a shortage of water. The food isn't up to their standards, right? What's up with this manna? Can't a guy get a gyro or something? How about some meat, God? So they start to romanticize Egypt like it was this five-star restaurant. At least back then we had fish and cucumbers and melons, leeks and onions and garlic. By the way, who in their right mind longs for onions and garlic? I could understand steak and pizza, but we're talking onions and garlic here, people. That's how you know they're really romanticizing this. Uh, And then even Miriam and Aaron, two of the leaders, start to join in the grumbling. Finally, 
Moses does this thing where he sends spies into the promised land. And, and what happens? Well, the spies return. You can see in this picture there's a, a beautiful cluster of grapes. And the spies return with grapes and evidence that the promised land, man, it is everything God has, has promised it's going to be. It's a land bountiful, flowing with milk and honey. And it's wonderful. This is, this is where, where God is going to lead us, right? But all but two of the spies, what do they do? They complain about it. There's a problem. They say, well, the inhabitants of the land are too big and too scary and, and, and too numerous. And what do they do? What we all do is they grumble some more. And here's God's response. This is our text for today. Numbers 14, 26 through 34. If you've got your copy of the story, this is going to be in the middle of page 77, Numbers 14, 26 through 34, and I'll invite you to rise for the reading of God's Word. It goes like this, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord. I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who has counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are heavy words. They are words of law, they are words of judgment, and we need to hear them. And yet, God, we are reminded as well that there is this promise that you will sustain and that you will lead the Israelites into the promised land, even as you said. I pray that your promise would ring loud and true in our hearts this morning as well. Speak to us now. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. There's a story told, maybe I've told this here before, I'm not sure, but I don't really care because I think this is so good, about a mother whose son didn't want to get out of bed to go to church in the morning, right? So she walks over to him, and she flips on the lights, pulls the covers off, says, come on, we got to go to church. Like, church is starting really soon here. And he says, Mom, I'm going to give you two good reasons why I should not go to church. Number one, I don't like them. And number two, they don't like me. And his mom, without batting an eye, says to him, well, I'll give you two good reasons you should go to church. Number one, you're 54 years old. Number two, you're the pastor. 
There's always something to complain about, isn't there? Even if you're the pastor. There's always something to grumble about. There's always a reason to be discontent. If you look hard enough, and the Israelites, they have no shortage of reasons. Whether it was a lack of resources or a lack of variety in their diet, or they didn't like the direction that leadership was taking them, they had no shortage of reasons. Or, or the inhabitants of the land were too big and, and too scary. What do they do? They complain, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble every step of the way. And it's not a one-time thing either. This is a vicious cycle that happens again and again. It's interesting, the, uh, the Hebrew word for grumble is loon, and what it, what it means is to have the open, it's to, it means to have open and plaintive rebellion against a person with the intention of undermining this person. And actually, the only place that this word is used is pretty much in all the Old Testament is during their Israelite wandering. So there's something unique about this word, open and plaintive rebellion with the intention of undermining this person. And the, the Greek word that's the equivalent for this is gungitso. Gungitso. Can you say that with me? Gungitso. Gungitso. There's some literary term for when you say a word and it sounds like what it actually means and this is one of those words, right? Gungitso, gungitso, gungitso. It just sounds like you're, you're grumbling. It sounds like you're complaining and you're, you're gungitsoing. And we're all really good at, at gungitsoing, right? The word literally means to make complaising, complain, complaining noises under your breath. Like this constant murmuring, just a baseline level of discontent that's always there. Now, we might read this story and think, well, like, what's the big deal here? Yeah, they're, they're complaining, they're grumbling, but this is just what people do, right? I've complained, I've, I grumble. This is what human beings do. They're just blowing off some steam, right? And the funny thing is, as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking, you know, we might even justify this biblically because there's a whole genre of psalms called the Psalms of Lament that are what? Complaints. David is open and honest with God about his complaints, and so aren't I supposed to be as well? Doesn't he encourage me, God, encourage me to complain to him? But there's a difference between being honest with God and putting him on trial, and that's exactly what the Israelites are doing. They're putting God on trial. They see him as their enemy. Unlike David, who saw God as his savior, the object of his salvation, the Israelites see God as the object of their attack. This is more than mere discontent. They've actually rejected the Lord. Old Testament scholar Brevard Childs puts it this way. He says, the people's complaint is not a casual gripe, but unbelief, which has called into question God's very election of his people. Unbelief, that's at the heart of grumbling. It's not harmless, it's destructive, and it spreads through the congregation like a cancer. It revealed Israel's lack of trust in God, and the consequences for their sin were massive. Forty years of wandering. I mean, these people, this generation, they did not get to see the promised land at all. They all died 
within a stone's throw of it, snacking on manna while the grapes and the honey were nearby. They all dropped dead. Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The Israelites experienced this firsthand. The wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. And their grumbling and complaining and murmuring brought death. Grumbling comes pretty naturally to us, wouldn't you say? It's the little-known sixth love language. Don't quote me on that. Um, For some of us, it's a spiritual gift. We have the spiritual gift of grumbling. When we encounter something we don't like, what is our first instinct? To complain. In his book, The Land Between, Pastor Jeff Mannion offers this insightful comment. I think this is really helpful. He says, the heart drifts toward complaint as if by gravitational pull. After all, complaint seems a reasonable response to a sequence of disappointing events. Generally, you don't have to extend an invitation for complaint to show up. It arrives as an uninvited guest, and it resists eviction. Yep. It's so true, isn't it? It's fun to grumble. There's some sick satisfaction we get out of it. It feels good because it's this outlet for all of our pent-up frustration and, and anger. And because it's easier to critique than to offer actual solutions, we complain. And who do we complain to? Who, who did the Israelites complain to? Moses. Claim, they complained to Moses. They complained to their leader. He's kind of the complaint box that they deposit their, their little slips in. Now, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, so in light of that, I brought a picture of a a pastor friend of mine that I wanted to share with you. This is Duncan. And as you can tell, Duncan is thriving in his current ministry position. Whether you're Moses or Duncan, being a ministry leader is really, really difficult for a number of reasons. One is that you have a big target on your back. The crosshairs are always aimed at you. When something goes wrong, any complaints, any discontent or any conflict, ultimately it all falls on your shoulders. You are a target for Satan's attacks. But, but here's the really hard thing, and you notice this throughout the New Testament, is that the biggest attacks usually don't come from outside the church. They come from within, right? Satan utilizes division, strife within to disrupt what God is doing. Another thing about being a ministry leader, and I'm not just talking about pastors here, I'm talking about elders and many others in ministry leadership roles, is that the expectations are not just high, they're impossibly high. (laughs) That's just the nature of the job. Functionally, you are expected to lead a life beyond reproach, grow the church, tend to your family, minister effectively to people of all age ranges and all demographics, preach and teach in a way that is biblically faithful, engaging, entertaining, funny, edifying, and just as relevant for a 16-year-old as a 72-year-old, week after week. 
You're expected to intuitively know when each church member needs a visit. So you have to have ESP. Got to keep tabs on 150 different people's spiritual, physical, and mental well-being. Keep everyone happy all the time and make it look effortless. So as long as your name is Jesus, you're good to go. And let me say this, too. If you are a worship leader, heaven help you. Because here are some of the reactions you will get if you ask people, how was the music today? Answer from the same congregation. We need more of those wonderful, lovely old hymns. We need less of those stupid, dead old hymns. There were too many fast songs. There were too many slow songs. The drums were too quiet. The drums were too loud. I wish we could stand up more. I wish we could sit down more. It was too long. It was too short. More repetition so we can learn new songs. Less repetition so the songs don't get too boring. You understand the challenge here, right? We live in a consumer-driven culture, so we've come to expect that all of our personal preferences will be met. But here's the truth. The church isn't Burger King. You don't always get to have it your way. I don't always get to have it my way. And customer satisfaction is not guaranteed because we're not customers, and the gospel is not a product we're selling. It's a message we're proclaiming. So here's the job of church leadership in a nutshell, and this is my definition, but I think it's thoroughly biblical. Job of church leadership, to prayerfully, humbly, and boldly shepherd God's church in a way that is faithful to His Word. To boldly, humbly, prayerfully shepherd God's church in a way that is faithful to His Word. That may not always make everyone happy. In fact, here's the truth. If it does make everyone happy, that's a sign that your church leadership is catering to the opinions of human beings rather than will, the will of God. They're being people pleasers rather than God pleasers. And think about Moses in this situation today. Imagine if Moses, upon hearing the complaints of the people, had said, you know what? Man, you guys are right. You should head back to Egypt. Right? All this, this, this new direction where we're headed, this is, this is just too hard, change is difficult, let's get back to our comfort zones. Had he done that, that would have been a leadership failure on Moses' part. Part of the calling of a shepherd is to lead people in directions they may not always be comfortable going. By the way, I want you to know that I say all of this not to garner your sympathy, but to share honestly some of the challenges ministry leaders face so you can know how to pray for us. I mean, maybe you can relate. If you've been in church ministry, you can definitely relate. If you've been in any leadership position at all, you can certainly relate too. So, so here is, here's my ask. Would you prayerfully, would you prayerfully consider lifting up your leaders, your church leaders in prayer, on the regular. They have a hard job. It's an important job. It's a joyful job. It's a job full of blessings. And it is a wonderful privilege, but it is not easy. Satan is hard at work. So pray for your ministry leaders that God would make them humble and bold and compassionate and loving all at the same time. 
Okay, so we've wrapped our minds around this whole grumbling idea, I think. Grumbling is bad. You all get on board with that? Grumbling is bad? Okay. Thanks, Pastor Luke, for, for that little nugget of, of brilliant wisdom. Um, we shouldn't do it. It's toxic. That part is clear as day. But what's the solution here? What is, what is the opposite of grumbling? Well, a couple of different options. Maybe it's this. Anybody ever seen one of these before? Yeah? I thought, the first time I saw one of those, I thought, this is Norwegian. This is like some quitcher bellyakan. I'm, I'm reading it, I'm like, that's not how you say it. Quitcher bellyakan. You see it now? Maybe that's the solution. Or, or maybe this next one is the direction we need to go. I think if Arnold told me to stop whining, that's all I would need to probably stop whining. But if you're anything like me, which is to say if you're human, knowing that you should do something or not do something doesn't enable you to actually do that thing, right? Knowing that I'm supposed to quit my belly aching does not enable me, empower me to quit my belly aching. The problem isn't one of knowledge here. It's not that I don't know what I should do. I know exactly what I should do. I shouldn't complain. I shouldn't grumble. I shouldn't murmur. The real problem is that I know I shouldn't grumble, but I do it anyway. And the issue isn't just with the words I say, it's with the attitude of my heart. So what's the solution here? Well, I want to direct your attention to one little phrase from this chapter. It's super short, probably easy to miss. But God tells Moses he's going to provide quail for the Israelites, probably one to two million of these Israelites, right? This massive amount of people. And Moses has got some questions about this. He's not sure how it's going to happen. And Moses grumbles because leadership is prone to grumble as well. But then it says this. This is Numbers eleven twenty three. If you have the story, it's the top of page 73. Numbers eleven twenty three. The Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Is the Lord's arm too short? What do you think? How would you answer that question in your own life? Is the Lord's arm too short to provide manna in the desert? Is it too short to rescue you from your wilderness wanderings, whatever that wilderness may be? Is his arm too short to bring back his wandering sheep, however far you have gone from the fold? Is the Lord's arm too short to forgive the sin that separates you from God and from others, even when you think God could never forgive that? He can never love someone like me. Is the Lord's arm too short to reach you, to bring you to repentance, and to direct your gaze toward the good shepherd who did what? Laid down his life for the sheep. Is the Lord's arm too short to reach down into your heart and to change your grumbling spirit into one of praise and joy and thankfulness? What do you think, friends? Is the Lord's arm too short? 2,000 years ago, God stretched out his strong arms on a wooden cross. 
Those strong arms had nails pounded through their flesh. Those arms were the only arms strong enough to save and redeem us. And he did it all without grumbling or complaining. See, the opposite of grumbling isn't trying harder to not grumble. The opposite of grumbling is faith in God, in the God who gave up everything for you because He loves you. See, it's my prayer that you find yourself believing the good news about that God this morning, that He came for you, that He is enough. So, dear church, may we find comfort in the arms of the one who was crucified and rose again to save us from our grumbling hearts. <laughs> and may we seek to imitate his example, the example of Jesus Christ, even as we, like the Israelites, make our way through this earthly wilderness. Is the Lord's arm too short? I hope by now we all know the answer to that question. Amen. Next week we'll be in chapter 7. The battle begins. If you like war movies or war stories, you're going to love this one. So I encourage you to, uh, to dive into it this week as we prepare for it and to use that little family devotional that we handed out to you, which is, uh, it, it has a bunch of little discussion questions to uh, get the ball rolling for you and your family. Maybe read it over supper time or on the way to practice or whatever works best for you. That's designed uh, all to, to flow into this chapter 7. Let's pray. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.